Hello and welcome to Box Cutters episode 172. I hadn't pushed the thing. My name is Josh Canal. To my left, John Richards. Hello, listener. And to my right, Brett Cropley. Good evening, viewers. Now, uh, it's, a, it's a big week on Box Cutters. It's the return of James Talia. Mm. In studio. The fourth Box Cutter. Yes. He'll, uh, he'll be talking... About the uh, the news coverage of the bushfires from a, a few weeks ago, uh, that's bound to be very interesting, and uh, I'm sure he's going to have a lot to say. We're also going to do a review of the new Joss Whedon show, Dollhouse, which is uh, less about dolls, but it's also not one of those home renovation shows. I know it's a confusing title. It's a very confusing title. Uh, We've got some letters to box cutters. We've got some pork. As always, though, let's kick things off with the box cutters news. And first up with a report on the global financial crisis, here's John Richards. Because nothing says fun more than global financial crisis. Um, Three different stories that all fall under the same banner of we're running out of money. CBS in America uh, has said that the advertisers are nervous. They're going to be locking their budgets a lot later this year. And so they'll be producing six fewer pilots for this year compared with 2008. The network only has room for three or four new shows in its schedule for next season. In 2008, they already did a, a reduced number of pilots because of the writer's strike of 2007. So basically each year is, is getting smaller. Yes, so we can expect less new not-so-great shows from CBS. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, less of The Mentalist. Uh, or whatever the mentalist for next year will be. Um, ITV also having having huge uh, cutbacks again. Um, cutting star salary, primetime dramas. This uh, six hundred jobs. And what's quite alarming here is that they're actually they're cutting shows which are popular, which is kind of I think a very alarming trend that um, shows that that are on air and already popular, like Wire and the Blood won't be coming back. Um, a touch of Frost will finish. Uh, Millie David Jason was retiring this year, but they're not going to try and carry it on. Uh, the Bill is going from two episodes to one uh, per Cause, week. Yeah, because they, they were doing two episodes a week, which was never a great idea to, to start with. I think but they, haven't, haven't they been doing two for a while? I thought yes. that was, you know, as in for yes. like a decade mm. or more. But I mean, people are still angry about it. Because <laughs> well, it's still nothing like what it used to be, which used to be good. Coronation Street and Emmerdale, which are their soaps, will still go on, but they're going to see budgets shrinking the actors will be paid less. ITV says it wants to focus on programs such as X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, and I'm a Celebrity. Stop watching. <laughs> so, um, yeah, look, it, it, it's, quite, it's quite disturbing, actually, that, that news that, you know, a quite major um, well, producer is... Wiring the Blood, I, I would have thought, would have made them a lot of money on DVD sales. And, and overseas sales as well. And so, Touch of Frost as well, very popular in other countries. But they have posted pre-tax losses this year of £2.73 billion. Wow, that's, that is like a hundred kabillion of our Earth that dollars. That is, that is of our Earth dollars. That's, that's astronomical. And uh, close to home, Network 10 is... Um, email went out to every employee from the CEO, Grant Blackley, in which he basically said... 
we need to save money. Um, which includes things like uh, reducing the number of days people work, the number of hours they work. Um, they're forcing people who have um, accrued, accrued leave to take it. Um, there are unpaid holidays over Easter. Um, it's all stuff to try and, and help them out because Can West, who we've mentioned before, um, have they owe $4.5 billion at the moment, and there's fears that 10 may be taken over by bankers. By a load of bankers. If uh, Cam West were to default if on their Cam loans. If Cam West defaults. One of the easiest ways uh, for a company to reduce their uh, their level of, of debt on the books is to force people to take their holiday pay because every time uh, someone doesn't take their, their holiday time off, uh, that is a P- debt that goes, debt. Yes, goes right. into, uh, into that part of the ledger. No one has ledgers anymore, but, uh, you know... You, you get the point. So obviously, Channel Ten are, tr- are trying to do that. Plus, I think uh, I, th- I think that the way that we're going to get out of this is by people just going, "Yeah, well, fair enough. I have to work four days instead of five. Uh, it might make a bit of a difference to to their lives, but it would make a huge difference to the to the companies. And I, I think it's uh, you know it's supporting industry. Well, in, uh, it, although supporting industry, it's a bit sad to see that you know in America and England they're they're having to stop making quality programs and focus on on you know less quality programming. Whereas in Australia, we we don't have quality programming to cut. It's not like Channel Ten can cut any of its yeah. drama because it doesn't make any. You know, so it's a bit sad. To think what, what about The Simpsons? They make The Simpsons. Yeah, they make all the episodes of The Simpsons. Yeah, they make repeats of The Simpsons. It's it's, a, it's like a factory. <laughs> It's like a factory. Um, off the back of that, uh, those happenings with ITV over in the UK, the uh, UK's Times reports that uh, the BBC may be uh, kind of flaunting it a little bit too much. And in fact, the, uh, the chairman of the BBC Trust, Sir Michael Lyons, has uh, in effect... Lyons. Announced a halt to further expansion of BBC Worldwide, which is the BBC's commercial operation and kind of isn't funded by uh, the the TV licence in the UK. Um, This is a uh, response to intense criticism after the BBC, uh, a broadcasting body, uh, bought for £90 million the Lonely Planet Travel Guides company. Right. Um, which, uh, you know, Lonely Planet TV has kind of been coming along slowly uh, over the last 10 years or so, and there's, there's quite a, an online component to that. Um, so I guess they saw that as, uh, as being conducive towards what they, they were trying to do. Uh, but the general public over in the UK kind of don't really agree with that. So um, <clears throat> Sarah, so the, the Sir Michael here. is saying that uh, they believe that Worldwide needs a tighter set of guidelines I want to see a little less overseas activity and uh, for BBC Worldwide to predominantly concentrate on BBC intellectual property. So Sir Michael's actually upset that they've got too much money. This is like an anti-global financial it's a bit crisis of an story. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a uh, he, he goes on to suggest that BBC Worldwide could make a very valuable contribution to Channel 4's funding deficits and. Uh, maybe allay some of the problems that they've been having that we've been reporting on over the last few weeks. Everybody wants a piece of Channel 4. That's, it's like, uh, it's, it's like a, a, an Irving Berlin We do seem to be reporting that Channel 4 is being absorbed into every station in the UK. That seems to be what we've reported so far. Thames Television, I think, are wanting to take over Channel 4 as our London weekend television. Right. Yeah. But good to every, see them back. Yeah. Everyone. Everyone wants to. Uh, so, so now we're up to uh, Thames London ITV 54. 
Yes. Uh, 45. 45 world. <laughs> Lonely 45 world. <laughs> yes. The, uh, which, uh, which, which is the, the sequel many years later of Lonely Girl 16. The, um, actually, welcome to my life. Oh, <laughs> oh poor 54-year-old Brett. 45. Whatever. Many people don't know that Brett was Lonely Girl 16. He was... You were, you were very good. Very good. Very, very convincing. convincing. Jinx! Woo! He can't talk for the rest of the show. Uh, clo- <laughs> it's going to be a quick one. Closer to home, uh, and the ABC have said... Well, uh, Managing Director Mark Scott uh, said at the Australian Broadcasting Summit that the only way to get greater digital take-up in Australia is to have an ABC Kids non-commercial channel. Wait a minute. Isn't that what Freeview is supposed to do? Freeview, uh, that uh, fantastic 45-channeled loveliness. Freeview, the 60-second ad. But that's all I really know Freeview that's, is now. That's, that's pretty much all it is. So, uh, so Mark Scott said, uh, We believe, as the government faces the challenge of driving audiences to take up digital television, to upgrade their television set or buy a set-top box, the biggest driver of that will be content. Oh, it's like he's been listening to box cutters. No, no, it's like he's chosen random words out of a bag. That isn't even a sentence. That is horrible. Don Watson would be spitting in his grave if he if were dead. If he was dead. dead. <laughs> no, read me that sentence again. Read me the beginning of that sentence. We believe, yeah. as the government faces the challenge of driving audiences to take up digital television... Faces the challenge of driving audience. That's just... Oh, that's, that's nonsense. Anyway. So he, he then goes on to say that uh, the, the biggest driver... Uh, of that take-up would be the creation of a standalone television service for children by the ABC. And here's one I prepared earlier. (laughs) Uh, It's it's just, yes, we're going to need content, but we're also going to need the money for content. And I don't think now is necessarily the right time to to start be doing that. Uh, Maybe it is. Maybe now is the time. Apparently you can get actors cheap. Well, that's true. Mm. Well, that's always been the case. It's Australia, Brett. Maybe Australian children's television no, could be well, the... Right. Um, like the, on Coronation Street, they're just going to arbitrarily cut actors' we could, we could get some of those. But, you know, like the Snowy River Mountain uh, so, scheme, scheme of... Yeah, the, the Hydro 50, Scheme. The hydro scheme. Yeah. Maybe this is one of the things. We could, we could make children's television as a way of bringing us out of the doldrums financially. Like, everyone could get a job working on children's television. And that's having an, an entire generation of uh, continentals immigrate. Yeah. And we, yeah. We could, yeah, we could bring over new immigrants just to make... Australian television for children. And then, many years later, we can make a long miniseries about it. About those long, dark days of making Australian... Toiling. Toiling, toiling up to 14 hours a day, making Australian children's television. That, that, that would be fantastic. Uh, you mentioned Freeview uh, during that. <laughs> what a surprise we mentioned mm. Freeview, Freeview on this show. And while we're on that topic, uh, Freeview <laughs> recently, there, uh, a spoof, uh, a parody ad of the uh, Freeview ad has been Which is making the, its the, way around the internet. kind the of amorphous slug made up of TV monitors. Yes. Going along uh, Sydney docks and, and the like. Uh, that's, uh, th- so there was a parody of that, which is a, kind of a, a viral marketing campaign for a, a show that is going to be on during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival hey. in April. Uh, I've, I've seen that, and, and it does look like the work of a genius. Well, that together. Uh, well, yeah, it's uh, Mark Fennell, who will also, uh, hopefully... Mark Fennell? Yeah, Mark Fennell. Uh, and Dan Illich. Or Illich. Or, you know. It's probably Illich. Illich? I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, so they're, they're doing a, a show in the Comedy Festival. They've, they've created this, uh, this ad. I'm going to play you some of that ad now. Uh, I'll, so, I'll give you some level. Thanks. 
Go for it. Get ready for more of the same with Freeview. With up to 15 digital channels, you can watch the same thing on up to four different channels. Imagine seeing your favourites like Kerry-Ann on 9192 and 9HD. You can watch sports you've never heard of, news you can't understand, and even question time. Yeah, mother question time. All in crystal clear standard definition. Without the ability to skip the ads and without the cooperation of manufacturers who couldn't give a shit, there's even an electronic program guide to help you look up which show Channel 9 will run 20 minutes late tonight. Freeview will give you more of the same television. Brought to you by people who are so creative, they even stole the idea for this ad from Ford. Ford. Freeview will make you want to watch your favourite TV shows on the internet. Freeview. I bet you can't wait. So it's a pretty good. Uh, it's it's a pretty good it parody. It looks great too. And, if you go to YouTube, the the ad looks fantastic. And, and they have and they have really managed to seamlessly take the Freeview ad and mould it into the, the Ford, Ford ad. ad. Uh, so that was taken off YouTube. Uh, and uh, Crikey reports that it is uh, it is quite possible that uh, Freeview, the marketing arm for free to air television's uh, burgeoning digital presence, writes Crikey. Uh, was taking legal action against uh, Mark and Dan, who uh, tried to uh, who, who did that spoof. They, they do say uh, uh, when I saw it on YouTube, a little sidebar said that it was under the uh, copyright wise. It was under fair use. I forget which the Australian term is against the the American term, but there is for for review and critique yes. purposes. Uh, such as what we do, you are allowed to use material, and uh, and and you're definitely allowed to to parody it. I mean, that's that, that is part of our law that parody is allowed. Yep. So in theory, they actually have every right legally to use that footage. Yes, and uh, uh, and so what we knew at the end of last week was that there was the likelihood, the very very uh, extreme likelihood that uh, that these two people would be sued by Freeview, uh, who have many lawyers. Uh, these two have none. So that was the way it was going to be. Now it looks like they're not going to be sued because the law is actually on their side. So that's good news for them. But r- really, is that Freeview? Is that the is, is that the the free nature of Freeview that will just shut anything down that says that they're not very good? Wait till uh, they try to get us off the internet. Not going to happen. Hmm. You can also buy a t-shirt with uh, it's got motherfucking question time in HD written on it from from, oh, their, from their site as well. Oh, that's great! <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, I'll I'll post up a link to uh, the YouTube clip which has in the uh, the more info section a little bit of a link to get your motherfucking question time t-shirt. Excellent, no, no, uh, and hopefully, yes, we we will have one or both of those boys uh, on the show later on in April. Uh, now, we know that uh, the local networks have all uh, conjoined to uh, impose Freeview upon us, as it were. Uh, television executives locally are poised to swing the axe not a month into the 2009 ratings survey uh, over potentially at least five shows. Uh, Domestic Blitz is down half a million viewers nationally, and... Uh, as it says here, appears to have dug itself an early grave. Mid-year analyst Steve Allen uh, said, It's dead. Viewers are just over it now. It's too over the top. Wipeout Australia uh, wasn't picked up 
that uh, that well. Channel Seven. They, they were showing it on Sunday afternoons with James Brayshaw or someone. It's it's ridiculous. Well, the presenters were James Brayshaw and well, uh, James Brayshaw and uh, the pretty one from uh, Thank God You're Here, Josh right. Lawson. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're, they're the an interesting that, phrase that are funny you could in the go anywhere. Yeah. And so, and what else? Uh, also, Channel 7's Director of Programming and Production, Tim Warner, uh, has said that they're going to have a shot at um, moving Scrubs to an earlier time slot, uh, having relegated it to the 11, 11.30 time slot on Monday nights on Channel 7. Um, somebody seems to have actually watched it in, pro- in programming at uh, Channel 7, and I guess... I think it's a little bit funny, and it might actually go down a little bit better in a more family kind of friendly hour. No, that's never going <clears> to <throat> work. Uh, Possibly, John, um, they did. They did kind of screw over last week. Uh, they were they were showing the final series of Scrubs, um, and then suddenly they were three series back, and and Turk and Carla were organising their wedding. Right, uh, John. Uh, just lastly, you had a piece about uh, ratings in the US. I do. Well, I talk about Scrubs. It's on this. Um, it's kind of interesting that uh, one of the Nielsen ratings in America is called Life Plus Seven. Now, this is takes into account uh, sort of time shifted TV. So uh, people have recorded on their personal video recorder devices or uh, DVRs is the term they seem to be using yeah, quite we, a lot in the we, US. We talked about this a, a while ago that Nielsen were, were looking at doing this. Uh, uh, probably I, even I, about two years ago I on think, this show. I think the look of it, this actually has been going for a while, but this week there's been a lot of coverage for the fact that um, the Live Plus 7 numbers have started actually adding an awful lot of people onto certain programs. So it was discovered that Terminator, the, uh, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and Dollhouse, which play on Friday nights, not a big night for watching television, they actually both increased by 30% on their audiences once you add in DVR. Uh, viewers, that's huge. It, it's huge. It's quite interesting. But they're saying they're still they're still small numbers as such. But it's interesting that um, once you add these in, Sarah Connor, Connor Chronicles audience goes up by thirty six percent, Dollhouse up by thirty percent, Scrubs by, uh, goes up by thirty percent, and Friday Night Lights up by twenty five. So it's kind of interesting that if you just looked at the basic numbers of the ratings, you would say these shows are doing really badly. But in fact, there is quite a large audience that just isn't watching this stuff as it goes to air, which is you know, obviously a, a, a thing for the future to look out for. And, and for shows like Scrubs, I guess you have to start taking into account how many people are watching them, but not at the moment you're actually broadcasting. Well, and, and add that to uh, the thing we, we talked about, I think it was last week, uh, where Nielsen has started counting uh, the number of views online, and you start to get a, a much more realistic understanding of, of how many people are watching a particular show and how popular that show is. I think it's about time. It is, yeah. And as mentioned, so the show's like Lost again. Yeah, numbers go up quite, quite massively. So it's, it's certainly something they should start taking a lot more attention to. And that is the Boxcutters News. Bonjour tout le monde. Bienvenue à Boxcutters. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Boxcutters. This is Toby Sullivan uh, displaying his bilingual prowess on the best TV podcast that uh, I've ever encountered. And now on Boxcutters, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome back our news correspondent at large, James Talia. <laughs> it's, it's not quite up there with being an Australian correspondent, no. but it's a, it's a valiant attempt and I like it. I, well, I just want to say it's going to be weird for our listeners to not hear you on the phone. Yeah, well, there Ma- is that. Maybe you should go to the next studio well, and ring I, And last time I spoke to you, I was in the country and still on the phone. Still yes. on the phone. Yeah, yeah. Right yeah. next door. So I yeah. apologise. Yeah. At least this, this time I'm not as drunk as I was that time. <laughs> <laughs> 
I we guess that's a bonus. We can't tell the difference. <laughs> well, that probably says more about me than it does about you. There's less swearing this way. <laughs> so far. <laughs> uh, now, James, we've, uh, it, it's been a big few weeks in news in Australia, particularly in Victoria, where you're, you're a reporter for Channel 9 News in Melbourne. And uh, th- for listeners who are not aware, a lot of Victoria was on fire for a long time. That was big news. This was actually an international story, though, wasn't it? Yeah, this was a big international story. Yeah. I was uh, surprised to see once I got into the fire areas just how, not only how, how big it was in terms of the stories that were being broadcast, but how big it was in terms of the personnel that had been sent from overseas networks to, to come here and cover it. Why, why do you think that was? Because you know, Australian news doesn't tend to, to break internationally very well, often, was my experience. I mean, Sam what- the Koala. Do you really think that's... <laughs> no, no, I don't. Uh, Sam was the obvious big picture overseas. But I guess you look at the uh, the rules of news gathering and news judgment. One of the primary ones is proximity. The closer the story is to you, the more you care about it or the more heavily it's going to be reported. Most of the time that obviously doesn't apply when it comes to Australia. We're so far from anywhere that if you're in Europe and something's going on here or in the States, why do you care? Um, I guess in this case, there's a couple of factors. Uh, the first is obviously amazing pictures. I don't want to sound cynical about that, but it is a factor. And the other is that uh, the the extent of the death toll. And again, I don't want to be glib about that, but it's going to catch attention when uh, so many people have died. Uh, if only because we are a first world country, we might be on the other side of the world, but... More than 200 people dead in a first world country probably counts um, in, well, the, in the same way that several thousand dead in an incident in a third world country might. Again, at, we're going back to these look at sort of but, rules of, but, of uh, news judgment, which are not hard and fast, but, but they're about a guide. Who relate to also. That, well, that's but, right, and that's what it comes down to, Brett. Yeah, You're right. You know, tsunami was, was... I can't think of anything that apart from maybe Pompeii that's been bigger. Um, but uh, what what... What kind of figures have we seen with natural disasters in fir- first world countries um, in other countries? Uh, like, are we well, number like the, one now? There was the... the, <laughs> there was not, the not wanting to be too glib about <laughs> it. I, I, yeah, no, well, not wanting to be too glib about it except being as glib no, as you fucking we, can we, be. We, we, we should probably good. say that, yeah. It's just we the to, question we, that's occurred to me right now. We were trying mm. to talk about uh, television representation of news and how television news approaches mm. these things. So it is going to end up with us kind of academically talking about dead people. Which is yeah, kind of and, and which is not something I feel comfortable with at all. But yeah. it's, if, you, if you're trying to quantify it, if you try to explain why it is that it was reported in the way it was, then it comes down to that a little bit. Because those are the judgments that are made in newsrooms all over the world. Well, um, and, and no doubt it's, 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 it's almost like the shock value. You know, you wake up and you hear, oh my God, 25,000 people have been killed in Indonesia. Which then in the days following, blows out to 200,000. Well, that's shocking. You wake up and you hear, oh, my God, 100 people were killed in a nightclub fire in Brazil. That's kind of there. Mm-hmm. You wake up and you hear, uh, oh, my God, a movie star OD'd in his New York apartment. And, and you see what I'm saying? And you're saying to which one you have the most immediate connection right, to? In yeah, some way? that's right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and this is a case where, uh, you know, everyone in the first world knows Australia. Australians are everywhere travelling. Uh, we, we do have a presence around the place. There's not often going to be a story which is going to be big enough to warrant that kind of attention. But when it is big enough, people do feel an affinity with Australia.
So it's kind of like saying, look at this sophisticated, technologically, you know, where you are, first world nation yeah. of, of white people. Presumably there's a bit of a, you know, race I, element I think that's creeping right. in. Uh, this could, you know, so it's almost like a, a kind of nightmare Absolutely. horror film thing. for. And with all our, with all our technology, with all our advancement, with all our smarts, supposedly, turns out you can't stop a 50 metre high bushfire running at 100 kilometres an hour. And that's a shock in itself, perhaps. And so the, the, the news in Australia uh, definitely uh, leapt to that and understood the importance of that immediately. And uh, I think every, every network was doing one-hour bulletins uh, to, uh, to give a summary, to give updates, to give emergency information. Uh, I, I've said on, on the show before, I was really impressed with the way Channel 9 handled it they they were the ones that i chose to uh to watch uh and because there there really weren't any ads i didn't have a a chance to to flick over because it was just story after story what i was uh most impressed though was with the how the entire team seemed to just activate and pull out uh some of their best work and understand right it's a giant story I'm not reporting the entire story. I have to report this tiny bit of the story so that over the hour, the audience can understand the enormity of the situation as a whole. How does that work in the newsroom? How do you divvy up what stories are going to, who's going to go out to where the fires are and who is going to uh, go to uh, Spring Street to see what the uh, what they're doing in Parliament about it? And how does that get decided? Well, it's really more important than in a situation like that for that to be done well, preferably early in the day. And obviously, circumstances change. And in in this case, in the early days, circumstances were changing constantly. But I suppose all you can do is decide, literally looking at the map and looking at the information you have available to you, we need to be here, here, here and here. These are the people we have these are our most senior people, therefore they're the people that we want in the most heavily affected areas. And then go from there. This is one of those circumstances where it's so big that um, there's no finesse with these stories. We were sort of three or four days in and it suddenly occurred to me, you, you have an idea when you leave the office in the morning or when you wake up in the morning in the area of this is the way this story is going to turn out today. And... Most of the time it wasn't correct because you have no choice but to just go there and and report what you're seeing. Just just stand there and report what you're seeing. A lot of the time that's not the case. You've got to try and craft something. You go have to go and try and get another interview to, to strengthen the story or whatever it might be. But in this case, it's all there in front of you. Just go get it and... Um, I, I think that made for some enormously affecting reporting. It was There was some amazing stuff to watch during that time just from people standing there and reporting what was in front of them there to see because it was such raw human drama. I, I said this to you uh, on the phone last week when we were chatting, James, that uh, th- there was a real difference between uh, the great reporting that, that I saw from a, a lot of reporters who were out there and uh, the the much rarer but still stuck out like a, a bit of a sore thumb, Walkley chases. Because in a situation like that where there is a lot of tragedy, 
there are going to be people thinking, right, well, this is my opportunity, and and they try to make it more dramatic than it actually is. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's right. I think I, I noted in private conversations with some colleagues across networks that um, when it's as big as this one was, the gulf is immediately apparent, almost immediately apparent between those who are experienced and step up to the plate without fuss and those who are running around chasing their tails because, for want of a better phrase, they're on the big one, mm. right? And I think you're right. Whether it's Walkley chasing, whether it's trying to get a better position within the network, whether it's trying to get even a full-time position within the network, whether it's trying to impress bosses in Sydney because their stuff's running network, which it doesn't usually, any number of reasons, but there were there were examples of that. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you connected to that was um, a, a couple of things I saw, and, and actually off the top of my head, I can't remember which networks these were on. I think they were across it. Was occasionally people were it was an interesting situation where people were, they were interviewing other journalists often, or the families of journalists who happened to be in the area often. Often, it seemed to me they were trying to work out if their loved ones were still alive. They were they were they weren't like kind of at work. You know, they were they were doing something quite personal. And they were there talking to their employees kind of on air as a journalist in a way that I felt slightly uncomfortable. I didn't think they were really willing uh, to be in the right place to be able to do that objectively. Are there guidelines, I mean, are there guidelines generally for approaching people, you know, in a situation like that uh, anyway? And then are there guidelines kind of within, like, like, you know, if you are employed by a station and they want to talk to you about your house being on fire... Are there kind of guidelines and directives for how you approach that kind of thing, or is that sort of open slather? There are broad guidelines within the, I guess, in particular, the um, the old AJA, the Australian Journalist Association Code of Ethics, about respect, respecting private grief, um, which uh, many would adhere to and some didn't. I know there were some notable, notable examples of where people perhaps weren't treated um, the way you'd like to see them treated. My, I, I, look, I, I, in, in the end, it has to come down to your personal ethics and your own humanity. In some of these instances, you're walking up to people um, not knowing what's happened to them. And my personal view on that is when I do that, the camera stays over there with the microphone. I'm not going to have any of this sort of barreling up to people rolling tape. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not at the front of a courthouse. <laughs> yeah. You know. Right. You're not chasing crooks. You're not doing a whole lot of other things. <laughs> yes. Um, and and it's, it's got to be a softly, softly approach. And if the answer's no, then the answer's just no. I, I, saw, I, I, I saw a lot of admirable stuff on the road and i saw some stuff that disturbed me but thankfully there was far less of the disturbing stuff than there was of the admirable stuff but you're never going to have to tread more carefully than in a case like this you know they're these are our people again for want of a better phrase you know and they're in our community and they've suffered terrible loss and you don't know exactly what loss it is that they've suffered until you walk up to them and have to ask them and if you reckon it's appropriate to do that with a camera rolling over your shoulder, go right ahead. But you're an asshole. <laughs> the um, 
the thing that strikes me about a, a giant tragedy like this is uh, that, and, and I got really excited watching the news. I mean, obviously heartbroken and uh, felt for it and you know for, for days I was texting and calling friends who have properties in the area and even some friends who just had properties all I knew was in the country somewhere <laughs> yeah, That's, you're a real country boy yeah, aren't you? Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Um, you know I'm texting friends who, who, who are like in, in uh, halfway between Ballarat and Bendigo going are you okay is it, <laughs> is it okay because I, I don't know it's outside of zone one it's not my not my place but uh you know, so, so I had all of that emotion, but then watching the news and listening to the news and listening to uh, the way it was being reported, I thought, oh, well, this is, the, this is the journalism that I've known for a long time that I haven't seen in Australian television journalism for a long time. This, it, it is actually coming out, all the training, all the, uh, all the, the concepts and the ethics and the... Uh, and the feelings and the knowledge and the the guts that go into uh, into being a, a journalist are actually coming out in this situation, and so I got very excited by it. Uh, you know, fr- from that point of view, is it the sort of thing that uh, can then be carried on that that desire to tell the story properly, and uh, that you know I, I don't see in a lot of journalists on television, except in this tragic situation well i i I disagree with you Uh, um you know i would wouldn't i well yeah (laughs) you got a vested interest i think that's there all the time it's just in most of us that's there all the time it's just perhaps not quite as obvious when it's a pregnant elephant at the zoo as it is when there's this terrible loss and I don't, I don't want to be just blowing off what you're saying, but I think, look, I, I think of it this way, you know, um, after doing this for quite a few years now, I probably write a better story under deadline pressure mm-hmm. than I do if I've got everything in the can by 11 in the morning and I'm trying to force myself to write it and I'll probably sit there until four, you know, get some lunch, do the crossword, whatever. And then all of a sudden, oh my God, I've got to get this done now or else I'm going to make it to air. It's it's kind of the equivalent um, not in terms of time, but in terms of what's at stake in the reporting of the story, I think. So I can't imagine a situation here locally where we're going to see more at stake than we did here in terms of how well, how ethically it needs to be reported. And it was almost as though people were pushed to do their best work by the circumstances. I was really impressed with uh, with Tony Jones, who I'd always just seen as a sports reporter, coming out and doing and doing news reports and and, and remembering, oh, he is actually a really good reporter. Yeah, and he's, those of us who work with Tony every day know that he's not. Uh, he can do more than reporting sport, well, and, and, and and in fact, frequently does. But you can you can see it slipping through the cracks perhaps sometimes until well it's it's easy to forget when he's just uh do, doing a cross from the AFL tribunal telling you uh you know what went down with whom mm. uh it it is easy to forget that uh that you know he does have that background training uh that uh that he does have that ability and uh you know again I'm just really impressed with the with, with the skills that came out Tony did great work and and on, on a couple of those nights there in extremely difficult personal circumstances. 
Well, do you mind if we talk about that just a, a little bit? I mean, feel free to say no. Well, I'm, I'm not going to talk directly about Tony. Um, no, 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 no. That's, no. that's a matter for him. But no, no, I, no what, not about t- Tony. But What uh, you're alluding to for, uh, for us at Nine, at GDV specifically, is the loss of Brian Naylor. Yes. And his wife, Moiree. And uh, suffice to say, Tony was very close to them personally. But beyond that, um, that was uh, – uh, it was a, a difficult time for the whole newsroom. It's 10 years now since Brian Naylor read the news uh, for Nine in Melbourne. And many of the people who work in the newsroom now didn't know him personally, would never have worked with him. Um, but it was um, – it. it it was as though a bomb had dropped in our room, you know, because um, apart from the great personal loss to the Naylor family and to those around the newsroom who who did personally know the Naylors, it somehow also felt a little bit like the end of an era with Brian's passing, even though he hadn't been in the room for 10 years. And that that... This was this was an extraordinary time of monitoring emotion, raw emotion, even for those gathering the news, not those experiencing it, because it was like a bomb had dropped. No, not many people in the newsroom knew before that Sunday night or during that Sunday night that Brian and Moiree were among the the, the the suspected casualties. So when it went to air, as Melbourne and Victoria were finding that out, that's when most of the people in the newsroom were finding that out as well. And there was shock and there were tears. And then this extraordinary thing, entirely unspoken, where two hours later we had an hour-long bulletin to put to air and everyone just went and did it. And it was, it was a sight to see. It's, it's extraordinary. And uh, I'll try to find it on YouTube. Somewhere on YouTube someone has put together, uh, just edited out that uh, segment where uh, Tony Jones and Peter Hitchner announce on air uh, about the the death of Brian Naylor, it, it is one of the most moving things I've seen on, on television in a long time. It's just uh, extraordinary. It was, uh, and it was a uh, even at that early stage, and there have been many since. But even at that early stage, that was a a fitting tribute. I thought. Yeah, I think so as well. John, you had a question ages ago, and I cut you off. Oh no, it, it's yeah, right. which is amazing because that's something that Josh never does. Never. It, it, it's actually again, it's it's a sort of you know a supposition on the news that you can cast aside like he did Josh's um, <laughs> it, it's more one, than happy to one of, the, one of the things that I kind of felt at the very beginning of the reporting and a few of the, the Box Coast listeners wrote in as well was the fact that we had the most incredibly sensational story happening and there were certain aspects of the news that kept trying to sensationalise something that was already sensational. And it occurred to me that a lot of our, our news is actually about telling stories. It's about finding moments within a thing, even if it's you know, why we have a global financial crisis or, or you know, why this is happening. And I, I felt that there was an attempt to do that with this story. And it was actually a new story. We didn't want that. All we needed were facts and figures. It was just like, where is the fire? What's it doing is what we needed. And there was a, an attempt to craft a kind of a sort of you know, sensationalist narrative out of it. Do, do you think there's any validity to, to that concept? And do you think the, the news gathering changed over the course of the, of the event, the, the story? Uh, over the course of the story, it did. It did. If only because, and this is, you know, I haven't spoken to any bosses about this. It's just kind of a, an assumption on my part from my own personal experience that after even two or three days... 
if all you were going to do was report raw facts, it was just too much. It was just getting too much to bear. Um, and so I guess we sort of, uh, I, from, from what I could see, we were trying to sort of change it up a bit so that maybe you were focusing more here and there on a personal story rather than just raw numbers. Houses gone, people dead, you know, doom. Um, so maybe you've got a very tragic personal story, but it's something that people can cling to more than just raw data. And then maybe you've got um, a happier personal story, maybe someone who, who's, who's been rescued or who found a neighbour who thought that they thought was dead. Or There's always an animal story. Every time there is a, there is a you know, any kind yeah. of natural disaster, there is always... And I must who's be, caring I, for the animals? Well, sure. I, I love these stories. I actually love the, you yeah. know, we found the kitten, you know, Mittens was asleep in the... Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it was interesting to see those started turning up as well after, I presume, the sort of second day or so. Yeah. And I guess that, that's also a decision made somewhere to go. Let's try and find some kind of happy story to go. I think it's... Uh, I think it's what you have to do. Um... I, I don't think, especially when you're running an hour bulletin where you usually run a half hour, there is absolutely nothing wrong with running the odd story in your rundown here and there, which is, is designed effectively to give people a little bit of hope and just lift the, the pall of gloom for a minute and a half. And I, you know what, this is going to sound twee and it's going to sound wanky, but I think that's actually part of the service as well. People want to know what's going on. It's a horrible event. Why not try to do something to make them feel just that little bit better or as though there's some glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel? And, yeah, that's a very commercial concept, but I stand by it staunchly because I think it's, it's, it's all part of it. What happens is uh, just a, a hypothetical situation because the week that the fire started, that was you know, the biggest story of the week and, and there was nothing bigger that happened during that week. But uh, what what happens when something that huge is happening locally, but something of uh, global significance, say the the uh, assassination of a, a, a head of government or uh, a terrorist attack or something like that? Where does the waiting go uh, on on the stories, and and how how would that fit into uh, to, to a news bulletin? I'll, I'll tell you when I see it. Right. It's, uh, in my view, that's entirely case by case. I can't, I can't sit here and say, um, shit, I don't know. Um, seven four seven going in somewhere in the US, killing all on board, would have taken the number one spot from the fires. I, I can't say that. I wouldn't want to say that that would be a hard and fast thing. Um, and I don't want to get into a pissing contest about just how big would the story have to be to have knocked the fires off that week, you know? Oh, see, see it's, it's, it's not a matter of knock the fires off, but, but it's a, a matter of how, how did the decisions get made for, obviously, things are happening in the world and we're very aware of the importance of the local news, but uh, at the same time, we do need to find out what's happening in the, in the rest of the world as well because we're not living in a vacuum anymore. no. But, uh, so, so how did the decisions get made to uh, to show that news world that that world news or uh, or to not show that world news? Well, I think it it comes down to gut. Because you're saying it's, it's it's as simple and as complicated as that. I want to see an equation on a blackboard. Because <laughs> yeah, you're saying at the top at the top of the interview that basically it's it's you know there's pictures, there's locality, there's and so effectively, I mean, there's a news director or someone I presume who just 
just instinctively goes. It's, uh, yeah, and and the problem with all those measures, mm-hmm. the inherent problem with all those measures, is that people who um, write about journalism, people in journalism schools, over a period of however many decades, have have come up with these rules as an attempt to um, quantify what, in the end, is a gut instinct. That's the problem with, with those rules and trying to like apply try- them hard and fast. It's like trying to apply economic theory to what is essentially just a, a fluid and organic scenario. Well, I mean, yeah, e- economics, it's the dismal science because you, you're trying to apply you know, hard and fast theory to human behaviour. Yeah. It's, I guess, perhaps a, a similar thing. It's, maybe there's an analogy in there. Yeah, that's right. James, th- thanks so much for coming in and, and talking to us. I, I know it's it's very hard, and it's been a, a very hard time for newsrooms uh, around the country and well, uh, Channel Nine, n- not, especially. Not not anywhere near as hard for us as for those people directly affected. Let me say that yes. as well. Uh, but to, to lighten it up a, a little bit, do you want to have a bash at Sunday night? You know, I haven't seen <laughs> Sunday night. Right, I haven't seen Sunday night. I do wonder about. Um, what what the studio audience? They have still. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. All I've heard. All I've heard is they have a studio audience and they do something with that. I, they, I, they I move, wonder about. They move chairs during the show. It's uh, apparently they? they have a Q and A Q&A session with the audience on the HD channel, but nobody's ever watched it. So nice. That's that, 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 that's nice like. for them. What on, yeah. um, on ten, ten HD? No, seven HD. <laughs> it's on ten HD on their oh. sports channel. <laughs> we, we, we actually have a Q and A with the Boxcutters audience on on Boxcutters HD as well. That's good. The Boxcutters HD channel. We're, we're very there effective is. at keeping our studio audience quiet. There is no Boxcutters <laughs> HD. <laughs> There is no boss cut. It's HD. When did the vodcast go HD? That's fantastic. <laughs> it, it didn't. I, that, that's yeah, as, as the vodcast plus two. Ah, yeah. excellent, excellent. <laughs> so you can watch the vlog. On a, and and vlog that camera's still two. there. I can see it yeah. up on the in the corner there. <laughs> I haven't seen Sunday night. I find it interesting that someone who chooses every word so carefully could just you know slip out a profanity, and I find it extremely interesting that that happened in a pre-record and it still went to work. <laughs> I didn't even hear about that. Oh, that's the, that's the that's uh, kept me in touch, Josh. Our Australian president, uh, Rod, President Rod. Yeah. As, as I'm sure he's... I, I think it's actually El Presidente. Oh, sorry, El Presidente. <laughs> was this last night or something? Because I've, I've kind of been offline. Yeah, this was this was this, this week offline. on... Offline? Yeah. Dude. Yeah. Uh, on Sunday yeah. night. He, Good uh, stuff happening. He, he, he was talking about the uh, global financial crisis, or Geelong Football Club, as I like to call it, and <laughs> uh, and and then uh, said, uh, said, oh, you know, whenever something like this happens, it's, it's pretty easy for it to just become a political shitstorm. And we... Uh, continue on but we try to make the right decisions that we that we have right and uh and oh the, the el presidente said shit on the television well el presidente was in a titty bar a couple of years back yeah. as well so what are you gonna yeah, do? But he, he didn't inhale <laughs> and, and exactly it's, it's still not a scratch on what where tony abbott's gone well uh, and uh and I, I i try to erase those photos from my mind but <laughs> still uh, coming and stealing your teeth in the night obviously <sighs> <laughs> Tony Abbott, those giant ears. Uh, the the thing with the the thing with Rudd doing that is, hey, Australians really don't care. It was like the titty bar thing. We don't care. We all say it. We all say shitstorm. It was an appropriate occasion to say well, that. Yeah, but you know the conspiracy theory. It is because we don't care that it was done. It, it was done because we don't care about the crisis, or we don't care about. No, because what we he do says. care about the crisis, but we don't care about our political leaders. Coming across a little more human, and Being, maybe yeah. it was about time for that. So, so it was an attempt to, to, to humanise it. Well, the, the the conspiracy theory is that it was it was deliberate 
on his part. And that it was very stage managed by his advisors. Yes. Well, that, uh, no, I've clearly no, no idea if but that, that was correct. But that just takes, that. that takes all the humanity out of it. <laughs> <laughs> By saying it was a calculated... And there's the catch-22. Oh, what are you going to do? Well, thanks, H- However, Rick. However, just before I bail from your studio and step out of the range of this camera on the wall... Um, there's, there's no camera on the wall. There's no, there is no video podcast. Um... I don't know why this has passed me by for so long, but in the past week, I have seen, for the first time, my first episodes of The Wire. Dude. I know. And, oh my God. That's all I've got to say. Yeah. I think we should get a special guest in who tells us The Wire is the worst show on television, just, uh, to, just to break it up a bit. I don't think you'll find one, will you? <laughs> well, we might have to hire them, but you know. Fr- fr- friend of mine, uh, friend of mine recently uh, went back to the States and, uh, and has nothing to do because she doesn't have a job at the moment. Uh, and so she's watched the first two episodes of The Wire and went, yeah, not everything uh, everybody else said it was cracked up to be. And I'm like, are you serious? No, you're clearly nuts. Sit down and watch it all the way through. It took me like up to the opening credits in the first episode of the first season. It starts with Tom Waits. You can't go past <laughs> that. You know, it's like where? How have I not been? Like so many people have so- <laughs> Why did no one tell what, me? Right. <laughs> Why is it that everyone told me and I still didn't do it until now? Because you you were away. And, uh, and there was only so much we could do. Was, yeah. You know, how hard did I have to work to get you to start watching Lost? Well, this is true. And now right. I've stopped again. Oh, have you? Yeah. Oh, you've got to come back. And, and, and The Wire makes Lost look like a massive waste of my time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't watch them at the same time. They're very... Oh, they're... No, not even to watch them at the same time. Just, you know, to exist in the same televisual universe. Have you, uh, have you, uh, have you done The Shield yet? No, that's, that's oh, the next man. one. That's oh. the next one, right? Oh, you really... But you first, now I've got to get, you know... I've got to get through another four seasons of The Wire first before I can do anything else. Because having watched those first episodes, I think maybe Tuesday night, I'm now done with season one. <laughs> well, you can, you I've can been polish working, that up in a month. sleeping Easy. and wiring. That's what I've been doing. <laughs> I did a season of Dexter in two days. Yeah, see? I it's bold. Uh, I did a season of Battlestar Galactica in two days, and then I thought everyone on the tram was a Cylon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I went a little bit crazy. John, I started, thoroughly John, investing I, your reality. I, it's because they are. I started trying to work out who was a Cylon in real life. <laughs> I did a, a full season of West Wing in one weekend and I was reporting politics at the time so you can imagine how screwed my head was when I went to Parliament Monday morning I, uh, I, I'm heading off to, uh, to the States next week and I was, I was really trying to work out a way that I could spend a couple of days in Beemore because that's what, that's what Baltimore's called yeah. in the wire, it's Beemore and uh, and I just I just can't work it out. It's, it's, I don't have it enough time. So there's no actual reason to go there apart there's, from apart from the fact that that's uh, plus that you don't want 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 in other roles on television. No, no, no. Don't say anything. No. Don't spoil anything. I don't want to know what else he's been in. I don't want to know nothing. Right. The why? That's I don't reality. want to know nothing. I'm just, you know, when I'm done here, I'm going to re-up. <laughs> <laughs> well, James Talia from Channel 9, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us all about uh, what happens in the newsroom when crisis hits. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Ryan Shelton, Box Cutters' favourite ever guest, and uh, I've really enjoyed myself on Box Cutters, so listen as much as you can because um, I'll be having it on loop on my iPod. Dollhouse is the new long-awaited show from Joss Whedon, which uh, we talked about quite a lot when it was in its planning stages. Troubled, one might say. Yeah, it was... I think in the planning stages, troubled. there was... Yes, it, 
Uh, because the the concept was quite difficult. Uh, what we knew at the time was it was about people who uh, were sent out to achieve certain goals in the field as a, a as kind of an agent, and when they returned back to base, had their memories cleared and became a blank slate uh, in order to once again be programmed to go out for another. Uh, another assignment later on. That's pretty much all we knew, and that itself was confusing enough. So, Dollhouse started. It was always going to be a mid-season replacement in in the US, and uh, and the first episode ended up having to be made again because the episode that they were going to show for the first episode was too confusing for audiences, and they had to explain it a little bit more clearly. Mm-hmm. The uh, so the premise is just that there there is are these field of let's call them agents and uh, they are sent out on assignments but in between assignments they are blank slates. One of those is named Echo. She's our focus for the show. She is played by Eliza Dushku, who people will remember as Faith from Buffy and also. One of the cheerleaders from Bring It On, and it does seem that uh, that that the dolls, as it were, are all named according to uh, the national NATO. radio yep. Uh, yes. yep. alphabet. Letter. There's yep. uh, Sierra, Victor, Alpha, the uh, the Ex- Foxtrot, Golf. Yeah, yeah so they haven't they haven't introduced <laughs> Foxtrot and Golf so far. They've Lima. only. They've yeah. only introduced ones that uh, could actually Hi, be Peru. people's names. Hi, X, right? Yeah, no, it's going to be interesting once they start running out. What are you doing, whiskey? <laughs> Nothing, hotel. <laughs> and, and the premise, too, is, yeah, so they, they get basically these, these personalities are built to be shoved into them for the, the job that they're being hired to do. Which and the is- job could be anything. I thought when, when I first heard the, the premise, I thought... The job is going to be kind of a Mission Impossible type, more of that spy type shit, yeah, like in yeah. uh, My Own Worst Enemy, or, or Joe Ninety, which is actually what this premise is. Do you remember Joe Ninety? No. Not so much. It's, it's a Jerry Anderson puppet show from the late sixties, in which a small child uh, uses a big machine to give him like safe cracker and. and I mean, it's always a small child being sent to do stuff that no health or safety officer would ever <laughs> let them do um, with this, this amazing stuff shoved into their head. Um, except that Joe 90 was less creepy than Dollhouse. And this, it, it is a really creepy show because the, what we discover is, is not only do they sometimes have to be a safe cracker, but sometimes they're also sent out for romantic... Yes, aren't they usually prostitutes? This is the thing that's yes, really offensive about they are usually the second episode. I mean, even the first, but the second one, you're going, this really is just a high-tech brothel, and I don't understand why anyone's paying a million dollars for a, a specifically trained prostitute when you could just spend a couple of hundred and get a good one. You know, it just Pr- seems... Pricey, what was the second episode about? Um, it was The Middleman. Uh, it was the middleman. Yeah. I thought that was the third episode. Maybe I did watch them backwards. Maybe, maybe because did, cause, yeah, the the third one was the um, she goes out to be a backup singer to help protect a Beyonce style. Oh, yes. I even saying it out loud, it just sounds well because it, it has that weird. You know, the, you know, one episode is that weird. Charlie's Angels type, uh, let's go undercover and pretend to, well, to the, be a backup listen, singer. I think we expected it to be Charlie's Angels, but it's like Charlie's Angels if they were also prostitutes in, in, in the rest of the time, but they didn't know because an evil organisation was wiping their minds. Like, it's, it's a really sinister concept. It's so many levels of creepy on top of each other that it's, yeah, it's, 
it's odd. And this is and, and so so there is this large corporate corporation that uh, that is controlling all of them and and runs the dollhouse. And then there is this one FBI agent who is trying to Hilo find from Battlestar Galactica. Yes, yeah. he's he's trying to find the dollhouse and uh, and break it down because it, it is this horrible organization. And uh, and his story is. Uh, is really interesting as well, and and just trying to find, trying to get to this very secret thing that it seemingly only the uber rich know about, uh, and, it, it, and it, it does seem that everybody else just assumes that it's this this fantastic it's urban, urban myth. myth. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sure, the dollhouse. Everybody's been talking about that, and it's it's a really it it is a really dark show. I mean, take take the. The glitz of being a backup singer take take all the you know Charlie's Angels aspects out of it. It is a really dark, sinister show. My thing is, I just don't know what it thinks it is. I don't know. I find this show. This is the first time I've ever had this experience of thinking. I wish I could just watch the second series and go back and watch this first one on DVD because Eliza Dushku has done some interviews recently. She's one of the producers on the show, and she says that the show. She's effectively saying the show doesn't get any good until episode six. She's trying to say uh, the the studio demanded that the first five episodes had to be standalone so an audience can come into it in any of those first five and before the arc, which apparently the, the Joss Whedon arc will, will, will kick in in episode six. That is a horrible way to make a TV series. Well, it is, because also the things like this doesn't feel like a Joss Whedon show. There's not really much sense of him. Which, yeah, maybe, that, maybe that's good. But, 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 but what are you saying there's not much sense of him? Because the, the concept... In itself, to to me, has has a lot of Joss Whedon in it. I'm not even sure, because occasionally there's these lines about them being an altruistic organisation slip in there, and you're going, in what way? I I don't even know... I I don't even know we're meant to think of these people as villains. And how could that that be possible if Killerman is one of the the operators of the organisation from Homicide, Life on the Streets? (laughs) Uh, he, he was also uh, he, he was also in uh, the first episode of The Shield. Uh, the uh, but he's always the in that bad cop thing. Th- this is one of the things I really like about Dollhouse, and and yes, I do really like it. And yes, it's not a surprise that I really like a Joss Whedon production. But one of the things that I really like about it is that in the real world, villains don't actually think they're being evil, and that's that's the big difference between something like 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 like. like, 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 like I think they're doing a service where they're actually doing something right. I'm just worried the show thinks the indentured sex slave thing is actually kind of hot, you know, whereas I'm just finding See, it I, really I don't, creepy. I think, I think it's meant to be really creepy. I think we're meant to go, hang on a second, they're running a brothel and they're they're horribly exploiting people who have turned up here for whatever reason they have to, to have turned up here. It's Because uh, it also seems to be... Uh, in that first episode where we see Echo being interviewed, uh, and she isn't Echo then, she is her own person, she seems to be going in there voluntarily mm-hmm. uh, and and then, you know, has her entire personality wiped from her. It is a very sinister thing. I don't think we're actually meant to think it's hot. So, so I, I don't know, I find this whole show such a car crash. Like, uh, I watched the fourth episode today, which is, is it's by far the best, but, you know, that's like saying it's the best type of vomit it, it's that thing of so, it, so you didn't like it so. I, I, look, it's just that thing of i wouldn't be watching it anymore if it wasn't joss whedon like i'm watching it in the hope it's going to turn good soon you know but every week i mean also it's, it's a show based on on a lead actor being able to play different characters every week except that can't. eliza dushku is the lead who is great as faith 
and as we've discovered in the four episodes so far, is great playing characters who are a bit like Faith. There's a kind of variety of Faiths she can play, but <laughs> really unconvincing. And, and I think also I'm having a small, slight problem with the character of Sierra, played by, and I'm going to get the name wrong, uh, Dickon Luckman. I don't know, Dickon Luckman. Right, Australian actor. She was in Neighbours, it turns out. I think she's great. And I find her oh, really fascinating. Because her, her Australian accent was excellent. She, yes, yes. Yes. That's, that's why I looked her up, because she, she, uh, she plays this Aussie number one super fan of, of the pop star on one episode. And I was going, I've never seen an American do a decent Australian accent before. That's really amazing. And then discovered she was from Neighbours. And I find her actually quite captivating on screen, because partly she's, she's just slightly odd looking. She's like a yes. cat. And and she's just so much more captivating and interesting, I think, and, and obviously a better actor. Because like, when she plays these different roles, you believe they're completely different people. Uh, Eliza Dishku, you just think of there's Faith from Buffy. Well, every she time. didn't turn up until the third episode. No, no, she's in she's in, in the first. She's the she? she she comes in at the very end of the she's, of the first. She's episode. the one in the dollhouse, though. Yeah, yeah she's yeah, the yeah. one who's not so, asleep. So not in the, the and she has a line at the end. She comes in and, and yes, so well, like, no way I can say it without spoiling the plot. She she appears in the final <laughs> scene quite importantly to uh, to come in. There is uh, th- there is this thing with the first five episodes where we are uh, drip fed little bits more. I, I'm I'm entirely captivated by it. I I really enjoy it. I I think as a as a show at a at a time when corporations are not have always thought that they were doing the right thing. And if we think about the banks in the US and, and all their loans and everything like that, uh, and everything just turns to shit because uh, they weren't doing the right thing, even though they thought they had everybody's best interests in mind. Uh, the, uh, you know, this, this is the answer. This is the, the, the show that we've been looking for to define the time. So I can see how that could be in there, and I'm and I'm kind of curious to see where it would go. Uh, one of the stations is currently playing Buffy again on late night television, and I saw the first episode of Buffy just for coincidentally the other day, and I hadn't remembered how quite ropey it is because um, I came into Buffy quite late, season four. I, I, it was the first time because Angel had left because I couldn't stand him because I right. thought <laughs> David Bowie is a terrible actor playing a terrible character. And because I love season four so much, I went back and now I love all of Buffy. I think it's great, but I hadn't watching it by itself realized it, it wasn't fully formed at the beginning and and I do wonder if Dollhouse is going to take off but at the moment I find these cardboard characters and these quite bad actors in a lot of cases and I mean, it's not even bad but for example there's a there's a can-do young nerdy techno guy who I just want to punch it's, every time he comes on screen just, I, I keep whenever I see him I always think oh, th- that should be Andrew from Buffy. From Buffy. And it does feel, yeah, he feels like one of the, one of the nerds from Buffy and it's the thing going, oh I've seen this character I'm a bit bored of this character oddly enough uh, um uh, Adele DeWitt, played by Olivia Williams, who is oh. the kind of villain. She's fantastic. She's Olivia, actually find her quite fascinating to watch. Olivia Williams is is a great actor, and uh, people might remember her as the school teacher from Rushmore. And uh, she was, uh, she is a really good. She's actor. a fantastic, and such small uh, uh, moments she gives to really fascinating to watch. And, and there's one episode where um, it's the manager of the, of the rock star turns up, and. She treats him in this way that you automatically think, oh, you were probably friends at uni or something. But she's so open and real and, and yeah, somehow engaging in a way that the heroes of the show aren't. And, and so, and you understand, I mean, and she, she does it really well. You understand why uh, she is in the position in the company oh, that exactly. she is, right? And that's, it's, it's perfect. What I think, though, is that her personality is so strong. I think the cop's personality is so strong. 
so that, yeah, um, that they that they do that as uh, as kind of a, a balancing point, so we can understand exactly how blank the dolls are. But this when is my problem. I don't think Hilo was that interesting in this. I don't, you know, um, I kind of feel he's not been given much, you know. And and again, it's it's ticking all those boxes of oh, he's the loner, he's the you know the loner policeman with the he's he's a bit too far. Oh, the FBI, the FBI guy. guy. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of I'm having a real thinking please get to episode six quickly and you know show me the good stuff because I'm, I'm just not sure where this is going and there is that weird thing if you, if you look online there's there's been that stench of death over this series you know since before it was made and, and everything being retooled and episodes being moved around and then fox giving it that friday night slot which i thought was really bad sort of you know a death knell for it so there seems to be a weird kind of nervousness that it's even going to get to episode six well having just watched the first three episodes as as it's continued on, each episode seems to be going, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, nothing's working, so we have to throw this new stuff in. There's there's a rogue doll that's out there just slicing everybody up with surgical precision in like two seconds flat. That that you know you, nobody ever knows where where is that there. Uh, with, but he has the, magic powers. He has, seems to actually yeah he's he's um, and uh, and. Becoming a, a two-person uh, mission, kind of that was just brought in as as a as a concept in the third episode, where it, it kind of hadn't really happened up until then. It, and it has been like I didn't know that they were all supposed to be standalones, but it's been very much like it's just reinventing itself each time that it goes back. See, I don't see that. I and see. I don't see. A, a, I see little bits being I don't see coming through. Much flow at all. That's it's it's fascinating because I I do I see that but maybe I'm looking for it maybe because I wanted to like this so much but I have to say before the first episode I was really I was worried I thought oh no what if uh, what if it's not good what if it's what if everything I've heard about it is not the way it, it actually is and uh, and it, it's just it's just really poor missing the point and and just not getting it and then I saw the first episode and I wasn't sure. After the first episode, I wasn't sure, but I thought it's quite possible this is going to be genius. I think, so I think in the first episode, there's a, a real problem with the premise that these people are coming and paying money to what really does seem to be just a brothel, saying, please get mm. me a hostage negotiator. And you're going, you could hire that from somewhere else that has trained hostage negotiators. You know, you don't, you don't need... But the, but the, but the, the middleman one is really bizarre. But the rich people are aware that... Uh, that the whole thing about the dollhouse is that the uh, the actives, as they're called, are given all of the tools they could possibly need, and it's completely discreet. I suppose yes, it's the anonymity you could argue, but also I think in almost every episode she actually stuffs up the um, the engagement. I think she's actually it's gone wrong, and in she's every having single flashes out, out like the episode, the brain. Writing but that's the, method isn't working. That's the that's the premise though. That was always the premise that that we have these uh, we have these blank oh. slates, but one of them it goes wrong. That's but just mine, the same I, as the premise for my own worst enemy, which you love so much. Uh, yeah, it, it is pretty much yeah. It's but, the but it, but. It's it's not the premise that's winning me over. But I'm saying it's the, the it's the way it's it's told. But also, keeping hit with stuff like because the actives are so bad at their jobs, you know, because like, you know, every time they hire her, she has some sort of weird mental breakdown and something goes horribly wrong. You're going, surely they'd tell each other by now. They'll all oh, don't go to the dollhouse. Oh, they're terrible. They're, they're really bad at what they do. Mm-hmm. Go. And of course, all of those pro- problems come back to the smart ass on the computers back at base. Yes. Yeah. 
not doing his job properly. The thing, the thing with my own worst enemy was it was too much like uh, the uh, not very good James Cameron film True Lies, and uh, and didn't have any originality to it. I Whereas think this is too much like the not very good Jerry Anderson series Joe Ninety <laughs> from nineteen sixty eight. You know, it's, it's no one remembers <laughs> that. It's it's just kind of a, actually Joe Ninety was was also a recurring gag in the Middleman. Oddly enough, there was uh, right. one of one of the guys lived in that block. They all referred to as Joe Ninety because of his glasses. Anyway, that's Dollhouse. Uh, I don't know when it's going to come on Australian television, if it's going to come on Australian television. I don't know if it's going to run its series in America, really. No. I would say wait till the end of the series and then... And then get it on DVD. DVD and, yeah, it'll probably be more enjoyable. But uh, I, I'm really liking it. These two, clearly not. Senator Postman. I have a letter. Did you read it? You're a godsend. The postman's been and left something in our box. Cutters. He's, he's like a male equivalent of Santa. He, he, he <laughs> isn't. isn't he, oh, I see. M A I L. Yes. <laughs> if you do want to send uh, send letters to box cutters, hooray at boxcutters.net is the email address, or there's a form. On boxcutters.net, the website, uh, click on the link that says talk to box cutters and you will talk to us. Mm-hmm. John. Uh, a few things here, look very quickly, we'll go through. Um, this is a two part one from Shane. A few weeks back, Shane wrote in that he had an idea for a segment along the lines of if I could watch one, TV sh- one show on TV this week, what would it be? Each of you would then answer that question for the audience with reasons. The, the answers couldn't be the same, you know, a normal episode of anything, so Josh couldn't say lost every week. Um, special episodes or season premieres, finales of series would qualify. What do you think? Now, it was an interesting idea, and yes. we, we talked about it. The problem I have is I don't actually watch television. I, I, I watch things on my computer that arrive from the world of television, magically. But, um, but yeah, I only really watch what we, what we specifically seek out. What we're watching for review. To watch, yeah, yeah. rather than, you know... Rather than, so I, I felt I couldn't contribute. But uh, you also have access to the Grand Guide, and uh, and really this this whole idea is just to go through what's going to be on the week, the the coming week of television. And if we were to watch one thing, what would it be? Uh, I really I really love the idea, and I, I do want to. Off the top of your head, could you think of something this week that you would? The Mighty Boosh. Ooh. SBS uh, roundabout. See, I don't know what time anything's on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think the, uh, 10.30 Yeah, poss- possibly. I, I don't shameless know. Or something. I've got a machine that records it. I get home and I watch it. Anyway, it was an excellent idea, um, which you know we kind of ignored. So another letter from Shane this week said, saying, uh, "Dear box cutters, what can I say? I'm outraged. I've been waiting for the past month to hear my letter referred to in the podcast, and nothing at all. Not even cricket." Uh, I've pledged double my no da- donation if it was read out on air, but alas, this now means nothing. Well, it meant nothing before as well, but yeah, fair enough, Shane. Yeah, thanks, um, Shane. I hope this is all a big misunderstanding and you understand the huge volume of tears this has caused. So, um, sorry for your, your tears there, Shane. And uh, we will It's another one we've lost, John. Another, another one. one we've, we'll we've lost because of, because of your lack of commitment. We're down to 14 now. Yeah. Give um, us a couple of years, we'll make a fine wine from it. Uh, Bert Boxcutter wrote in to say, um, a long-time listener, first-time writer, um, further Josh's comments last week about the night shift being forever part of watching Stop Making Sense from the it's Channel 10 simulcast. L- listening, to, yeah, listening, to the, uh, lis- listening to the tapes of it that we yes. recorded off Triple M. Uh, he has the exact same experience, although visually he also now can't watch the film without thinking, where's the a night shift presentation logo splattered all over the opening and closing credits for no reason? Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, um, he also mentions, uh, we talked last week about people recording things 
things off television uh, onto audio tapes you know, back before the coming of the video recorder, which changed all our lives. Um, he got so sick of his mother making stupid random comments about how impractical Sontar and air vents were and the like that he wired up an audio lead straight from the speaker on his TV to his deck so his recordings were clean. <laughs> <laughs> he then drew up artwork to cover the tapes and ends up saying, I think I was a lonely child. <laughs> Um, Nerida wrote in um, to mention that, uh, yes, again, as we said, racism's the same wherever it is. Yes. No, no, I, I was listening to the to last week's episode as I was coming in uh, and, and haven't seen that uh, post until just now. I wasn't saying that racism is any different uh, between Melbourne and Sydney, but I think you, that... You're just I, saying that Aborigines are a bigger problem in uh, in Sydney <laughs> and Northern Territory. Isn't yeah. that right? Brad? No, no. That's what yeah. you were saying. I, I think the uh, the whiteys are a bigger problem in, in the, the more northerly aspects of this country. Um, and it, it's a lot more prevalent. Uh, it seems that in Melbourne... We don't have that. That uh, many white people. That that really obvious racism, racism as you see in other parts of Australia. So what you're doing there is, is really just covering up your own racism with reverse racism. You're just an apology for all the racists. <laughs> I don't know where this is going now. Um, there it also says plenty of women watch Northern Exposure. Yeah, and she put plenty for in Chris in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and also, ends up, uh, do we have to put Jeff Probst on Death Watch now? You bastard, Josh. So um, there we go. Josh may be killing. Jeff Probst. Well, and, and while I said it was uh, for the ladies that wouldn't have watched Northern Exposure, it was actually for the youngins that wouldn't have watched Northern Exposure. Right, and you often get ladies and youngins confused because... No, I was, I was thinking Explain on my Explain your face. way out of that one. I was thinking on my <laughs> Racist. And thought ladies watched... Uh, so so the, the young guys, no idea who Chris in the Morning is, or Aiden, or right. uh, what's his actual name. Don't look at me. See, nobody can tell me. <laughs> no one knows. Proving my point. It's so letters to box cutters. Uh, if you want to hear the uh, email address, you go back to the beginning of this segment. Hey, um, when I cast my pod, it's with the box cutters in mind. Box cutters. Pod. Cast. Done. Pork is on the table. Very quickly, uh, just to finish off the news thing that I got cut off with. City Homicide. What do you mean you got cut off with it? City Homicide is, uh, looks to be in trouble. Uh, it moved from Monday nights to avoid underbelly. It's on Sunday nights, uh, but it has lost 400,000 viewers since last year. Dexter's That's being shifted to, Ro- to uh, follow Rove on Sunday nights on Channel 10. Again, the uh, underbelly effect. And Gorilla Gardens Gardeners uh, is uh, very low, but programmers at Channel 10 are supporting them, even though uh, local councils probably uh, apparently have a, an issue with them as well is it uh, g-u-e gardeners yes. it is yes yeah also uh, our listener Li- lister l-l-i-y-s-t-i lister apologize if i've mispronounced that um, Le- i think i think it's lister lister sent us in a little bit of information about the remaking of v but we'll try and put that up as a link so you can read it yourself good in work. your own time and that brings us to the end of box cutters episode 172 i want to say thanks so much to James Talia for coming in all the way from Melbourne. That was amazing. It's, and it's, it's been a weird month. I, I have kind of forgotten how I felt back then and what it meant. And it just brought and it James all back. coming in, yeah. It was uh, extraordinary. Thank you so much, James. We really do appreciate it, as do our listeners. I really didn't want to be glib. I was glib, but I didn't I know, want to be glib. But it's, it's hard not to be. Uh, also, thanks very much to uh, Crumpler, who are our giveaway sponsors. Thanks to 3RRR, whose studios we use for recording this podcast each and every week. 102.7 on the FM dial in Melbourne surrounds rrr.org.au online. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you found it informative, please go into the iTunes Music Store 
and write a comment on the Box Cutters page there or go to any cooking websites that you're aware of to make John's life a little bit happier. Any cooking websites. Any cooking websites and write about Box Cutters. And please, if you do that, email us, hooray at boxcutters.net and send us a link to your comment on that cookery website and we will uh, take a screenshot of that comment on the cookery website. <laughs> make put a it t-shirt, up. send it to you to wear. Take a digital photograph of you. <laughs> Beam it onto the moon. Yeah, no, no. Everybody wins. <laughs> Everybody wins. Until then... No! Wait! <laughs> I forgot to mention entirely... I won't be here for a few weeks, but then I will be here, but then I won't be here, but then I will be here, but then I won't be it's here. It's quite odd. Through the magic of teleportation, we will be including Josh in the next three weeks, even though he will physically be in another... He'll be a hologram, but like we are that going, terrible we news coverage. We are going to have to uh, set up a, a black screen in front of the camera so you can't actually see what's going on on the video podcast. There it'll, is, it'll be confusing. There otherwise. is no video podcast, but maybe there yeah. will be one in America where I'll be. I'll be in the United States of America touring around, basically going, oh, they have television here too. I'll be back in three weeks' time. We'll be here looking after you guys, the listeners. With many fabulous guests and surprises. Mm. My name is Josh Canal. I'm John Richards. <laughs> Josh, I'm, I'm th- not sure he's ready to go. I'm thinking about guests and surprises. That's what I, was <laughs> I continue to be Brett Cropley and the uh, outro team music. has uh, run out on us. I haven't even left and it's all gone to shit, Brett. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Box Cutters, as uh, shit as it might be. Uh Catch us again next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. And hey, let's be careful out there. We swore a lot this week. We did.